0: and use code GET100. That's code GET100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. PrizePicks, daily fantasy sports made easy.
1: This is the American Veteran Show.
0: Proud to finally say
1: these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors. As liberators, dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than one percent of the population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military. And the other ninety-nine percent of us, we owe them. Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephan Tubbs.
2: Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you joining us, and we have uh, an emotional hour coming up here on the program. Of course, we could not do this without our presenting sponsor, Attorney John Boson, and his team of attorneys fighting on behalf of veterans every single day. They're getting involved in the toxicity of water at Camp Lejeune. They are, of course, available for our veterans and military families. If you are having an issue, please know there's a team out there that is specifically focusing on you, those who have served, and, of course, their families. Boson Law, B-O-E-S-E-N, BOSONLAW.com. Call John and his team, 303-999-9999. Coming up, we dedicate this program to an incredible World War II hero and an Air Force veteran whose life was cut short in the line of duty in the city of Arvada just a week ago today. We also will wrap up with an incredible story of a Vietnam veteran who was a dog handler in the United States Army. We have all of that straight ahead. But first, many of you on the air here have heard our support and and our love for our World War II veterans, in particular one of my favorite human beings ever. Mr. Robert McAdam, Bob McAdam, who was featured in our film 25 Steps. He's been a frequent guest and a a person we cover here on the program. Bob passed last week. He had a full life. He was 101 years old. And coming up this Friday is his funeral in the south part of the Denver metro area. We want to talk about Bob and I'll give you some of in these first two segments, some of of my thoughts, how it's so important to remember and to capture these stories, because while sad, it's not tragic when you die at 101. It's a full life lived. So we'll talk about that. I do want to begin, though, with, of course, the utmost respect to a 27 year old United States Air Force veteran a member of the Arvada Police Department, who was taken way too soon.
3: And if you would allow me final thoughts for today, Dylan's mother has asked that I read a letter that she has written to her son. Well, Dylan, here we are. I received the call that since the day you were born, I was afraid to get. I know we talked at great lengths about this day. We made a pact. If you died, you would die being a heroic lion.
4: 4 Charlie 50. 4 Charlie 50. 4 Charlie 50. Four Charlie 50. Dispatch to 4 Charlie 50, Officer Vakoff. Negative response. All cars stand by for tones. All cars be advised, this is the final call for 4 Charlie 50. Officer Dylan Vakoff, batch number 1927. Officer Vakoff was fatally shot while responding to the call for duty on September 11, 2022, after serving the citizens of Arvada for three years and serving his country for six years as a staff sergeant in the United States Air Force. He was an extraordinary officer with incredible ambition, drive, and passion. The men and women of the Arvada Police Department are forever grateful and proud to have served with Officer Vakoff, and will never forget his ultimate sacrifice. All units break for a moment of silence. Officer Vakoff, you are clear for end of watch. Rest easy, Dylan. You and that smile will never be forgotten.
2: Arvada police officer Dylan Vakoff, as you heard, six years in the United States Air Force, left as a staff sergeant, killed in the line of duty to the Vakoff family and friends, to members of the Arvada police department, our heartfelt condolences. And we remember, we also remember my friend, an incredible American that In his 80s, was the number one ranked racquetball player in his age group on the entire planet. Just an incredible human being. Robert McAdam, his funeral coming up in just a few days. This from our documentary film on the two POWs that would meet in a hallway at a retirement home in Highlands Ranch, Colorado, only 25 steps apart from each other. And they realized they lived in the same compound North 2 at Stalag Luft 1 from 1944 to 1945 in Barth, Germany. This again from 25 Steps.
3: America is at war. In Illinois, the war comes home to the family of Robert McAdam.
5: I was drafted. I purposely did not join because my mother had five boys. And the first one was drafted, the second one volunteered, and the third one was drafted. Every time one of her sons went in, she cried for nights. By this time, the other brother had gone in too, so there was, we had a five-star flag in the window. When I went in, I was in the Army part of this before I transferred into the Air Force. I graduated as a navigator in uh, April of 44. And upon being commissioned, was assigned to go through phase training in B-17s.
2: Shot down just three hours into his first mission. Broke a couple of ribs when they bailed out of their B-17 over Austria. And he was then
6: taken into custody. The
5: town was Barth, and the camp was called Stalag
6: Luft 1. At last, after weeks of being pushed around from jail to jail, we arrived in Barth on the 23rd of July. From the little town, we could discern the swastika flying high over the camp as we walked that last mile.
5: When we approached the camp, a bunch of the prisoners inside, um, we could hear them say, New Kriegies up, new Kriegies up, new prisoners of war. And uh, uh, then they said, Did you guys bring any food? Did you bring any water? And then when we got inside, we found out that they had actually saved some of their own food for us because they had gone through this themselves um, before they got into camp, that they were pretty much starved between the time they were captured and the time they got to the camp.
2: In this recreation, voiced by Chandler Parnell,
3: Bob's letter home. Bob McAdam and Butch Dessens are prisoners at Stalag Luft 1. For their families, there is still no confirmation that they are even alive. Then, a letter from Bob to his mother. Dear Mom,
6: For the first time in my life, I have plenty of time on my hands. However, most of my former activities are restricted here. You should know that I'll be thinking of you every day until I walk through the door of the old mansion once again.
5: The darkest moments for me was when I thought about My folks at home and my family and that, they didn't know what condition I was in. They didn't know that I was still intact and and, uh, was going to make it back. And uh, my mother had, you know, she had five in and uh, she had gotten two missing inactions within 10 days on two of us.
6: I realize better than ever now that a mother must be the best soldier in the family. Love to all, and especially you, Bob from 25 steps
2: you can see that right now all you have to do is go online 25 steps documentary just about 45 minutes in length and absolutely free coming up in our next segment here on the program this sunday we will have more on the life of bob McAdam, as told through the film 25 steps we also again send our heartfelt condolences to officer dylan vakoff's friends and family and the arvada police department realize it's a somber way to start but that's life And we will continue segments two, three, and four coming up next. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Now, back to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stephen Tubbs. Glad you're with us as we continue the program as our first few segments, we remember heroes. Officer Dylan Vakoff of the Arvada Police Department, a United States Air Force veteran, six years in, left as a staff sergeant, killed in the line of duty a week ago. And the passing of Robert McAdam, the co-star, if you will, of our documentary film, 25 Steps, POWs at Stalag Luft 1 in Barth, Germany. This from the film 25 steps, as we remember.
5: I arrived with an air crew in Foggia, Italy, on July 4, 1944. I had had only one orientation period, and I learned just a couple things that became really important to me. One was, don't take your small arms with you when you fly, because you're not going to shoot your way out of Germany if you go down.
3: Bob and his new crew take off for their first mission the morning of July 7th. 1944.
5: The objective of our mission was to destroy an oil refinery in northeast Germany in a town called Blackhammer. I think we had probably about 50 planes to accomplish that mission. I wasn't worried about what was going to happen on the mission. All I wanted to do was to do my job and make sure I knew where the plane was at all times.
3: About 30 minutes from their target, the bombers are jumped by German fighters.
5: Somebody said, Wolves at 10 o'clock, and that was my side of the airplane. So um, I dropped what I was doing on navigation and went to my 50 caliber guns. I got some shots off, but I think I was way behind. About a minute later, Two of our engines start acting up. One was trailing smoke and the other one was sputtering. The pilot said, I'm gonna feather these engines and we're turning around. We can't make it to the target on two engines.
3: The captain orders the crew to jettison everything, hoping to limp back to Italy on the B-17's two remaining engines.
5: In about 30 minutes into the return flight though, another engine went out. And the pilot said, we can't make it home on one engine. He said, we're going to have to bail out. I'll see you in the States. The bombardier motioned to me to go back to the waist to bail out. I was going to bail out the hatch, but apparently parachutes get caught in the hatch sometimes on the way out. And the six enlisted men were already bailing out. I was the seventh man out. The bombardier was the eighth man out.
3: Somewhere over Austria, Bob parachutes from his doomed aircraft.
5: I was wearing a uh, a chest chute, and it's the first time I ever wore one, but I I remembered that in an orientation to it, they said, don't ever pull the cord while your face is over the the chute, because it'll snap your head back. So I I spread my arms and legs and and waited until I was kind of in that position where I was looking up and pulled it.
3: Landing hard, Bob breaks two ribs. He makes his way across a clearing towards some woods he hopes will hide him until nightfall.
5: When I got to within about a yard or maybe two yards of the woods, a piece of bark flew off the tree and I heard a shot. I think the bark flew off just before I heard the shot. But anyway, uh, I turned around and there were two guys. One guy was in uniform and he dropped to his knee and pointed the rifle at me. He was about 20 feet from me. And there was another guy, a civilian, and he, was, he had a pistol and he said, hold, oh, oh, hold, oh. hold. I still don't know why that guy didn't shoot me. But I thought it was a dream until that time. I, it was just like a nightmare. Here I am, my first mission. Is this real or isn't this real? But when they pointed the gun at me and they took me um, took me up the hill and I got pushed around a little bit by the by the civilians, then and then I realized, I, uh, this is it. Uh, I'm a prisoner
3: of war. Weeks later, Bob's parents receive a War Department telegram, regretfully informing them that Robert McAdam is missing in action. At this point in the war, Allied aircraft are laying waste to German cities. Relentless day-and-night bombing raids destroy military targets, and sap many civilians of their will to fight. For some German citizens, captured Allied airmen are the face of death from the sky.
5: When we were in Frankfurt going to our interrogation center, uh, a young boy uh, was riding his bike, he had a basket full of egg-sized rocks, and he was kind of hysterical, and he was throwing his rocks at us. And we told the guard, you know, have them stop doing that. And the guard said, what would you do if our bombers killed your mother and father? The kid was screaming something and we didn't understand what it was. But apparently our bombers had killed his folks.
3: Bob McAdam spends his first week in captivity locked in a town jail in Austria. We were put in solitary confinement
5: awaiting interrogation and they had plenty of of people that they were putting through interrogation at this time and so I was in solitary for seven days before
3: my term for interrogation came up. The German officer interrogating Bob not only speaks English he is alarmingly well-informed.
5: Then he opened up a big, big book and he said, I probably know more about your mission than you do. He started to give numbers of the airplanes. The thing that really let me know that he had good intelligence, was. he said, and your group commander is named Colonel Rice. Well, Colonel Rice was the guy that gave us the orientation mission.
3: Bob and other prisoners are loaded onto a train bound for a POW camp. He describes it later in his journal.
6: By July 23rd, we had all been looking forward to our assignment at a permanent POW camp. Occasionally, the train we had been riding would be
3: forced to halt in the protection of some hillside, while the 8th or the 5th... Both men end up at a POW camp within sight of a small German town on the edge of the Baltic Sea. It was right across the Baltic from Sweden.
5: Ended up at uh, Stalagluft 1. The town was Barth, and the camp was called Stalagluft 1.
6: At last, after weeks of being pushed around from jail to jail... We arrived in Barth on the 23rd of July. From the little town, we could discern the swastika flying high over the camp as we walked that last mile.
5: When we approached the camp, a bunch of the prisoners inside, uh, we could hear them say, new Kriegies up, new Kriegies up, uh, new prisoners of war. And uh, uh, then they said, did you guys bring any food? Did you bring any water? And then when we got inside, we found out that they had actually saved some of their own food for us, because they had gone through this themselves um, before they got into camp, that they were pretty much starved between the time they were captured and the time they got to the camp.
3: Bob McAdam and Butch Dessens are prisoners at Stalag Luft 1. For their families, there is still no confirmation that they are even alive. Then... A letter from Bob to his mother. Dear Mom, For the first time in my life,
6: I have plenty of time on my hands. However, most of my former activities are restricted here. You should know that I'll be thinking of you every day until I walk through the door of the old mansion once again.
5: The darkest moments for me was when I thought about my folks at home and my family and that they didn't know what condition I was in. They didn't know that I was still intact and and, uh, was going to make it back. And uh, my mother had, you know, she had five in, and uh, she had gotten two missing inactions within 10 days on two of us.
6: I realize better than ever now that a mother must be the best soldier in the family. Love to all, and especially you,
3: Bob. Butch also gets word to his parents. Dear folks. I'm feeling fine now. Wasn't hurt coming down. Lucky, I guess. I've been doing a lot of remembering lately, mostly about your Sunday dinner, Mom. So you better be ready when I get back. Love, Sherwin. Bob McAdam,
2: a full life, and incredible human being, 101 years on the planet and making such an impact. We'll have more on his funeral coming up next week on the program. Straight ahead, we talk with a Vietnam veteran who brings us an incredible tale of his dog, his service dog, a seven-year-old German shepherd named Big Boy. That comes up as we continue. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com.
1: Welcome back to the American
2: Veteran Show. We continue now with Stephen Tubbs. We're with Rick Claggett, Littleton resident from 1970 to 1972. He was uh, in the United States Army in Vietnam. Sir, I say to you, thank you for being here and welcome home. Thank you very much. What What brings us to this point? You, so many years later, you continue to talk about Vietnam, and we'll get into a lot of more on your background, but what brings us here today? I didn't
7: talk about Vietnam for a long time, as did a lot of veterans, because Vietnam, of course, was not a popular war. And at the end of the war, I took my uniform off, and the only people that knew I was over there was my... My family and my personal friends nobody else needed to know that it really wasn't until my daughter reached school age and and heard about the war and asked dad what did you do in the war and I said well I was a dog handler and she said that's pretty cool you ought to talk about that and I had taken slides when I was over in Vietnam and and she got them out and she said you need to do a PowerPoint and I said well what's a PowerPoint (laughs) and uh she put it together and i i gave it at my work and i thought that'd be the only time i talk about it i've probably given maybe a hundred presentations on it
2: now i loved doing it i love letting people know what these dogs did you know you have a hat on today and it says vietnam dog handler and i can't help but see the juxtaposition of when you came home you had nothing to do with your uniform and now in 2022 you know, 50 years later, you're, you're giving speeches and slideshows and all of that. Um, that probably has crossed your mind a few times.
7: Yeah, uh, and I never would have worn this hat 10 years ago. But in the last 10 years, number one, I wanted to let people know what these dogs did. And number two, I
2: was proud of what I did. It just took a long time to get to that point. And you know what? We are the beneficiaries of, of your, uh, I know you're probably going to roll your eyes, but your bravery, your your willingness to talk about it, and we will. Again, our guest, United States Army veteran Rick Claggett. Where'd you grow up? I grew up outside of Philadelphia and, and
7: never had a dog. My dad didn't like him, so my first exposure to dogs was in the Army.
2: Wow. And uh, take me to 1970, and the Vietnam War is raging. Uh, we have had, at that point, tens of thousands of Americans killed there. Uh, How does the war come to you?
7: Well, I did not get drafted until 1970. And in that period of time, we were bringing more troops home than we were sending over there. And I went to basic training and then advanced infantry training. I knew I was going to be in infantry in Vietnam. We had a presentation while I was down at Fort Polk, Louisiana, from... A dog handling team in Fort Benning Georgia recruiting for dog handlers and they said outside of helicopter pilots and snipers dog handlers had the third highest mortality rate which wasn't a real sales pitch but I thought if I'm going to be in the infantry I want somebody with me that's got better senses and so I applied for that school and was very fortunate
2: to be accepted so you how do you get to Vietnam
7: After I I finished up my infantry training at Fort Polk, Louisiana, I was sent to Fort Gordon, Georgia as a tracker dog handler. Tracker dogs are Labrador retrievers. Their job is to follow blood trails. They're silent trackers. If contact was made with the enemy in Vietnam, they called in a lab and a handler to follow up on that. However, when I got to Vietnam, they didn't need tracker dog handlers. They needed scout dog handlers. Scout dogs are German shepherds. Their job is to lead a patrol and smell out human ambushes and booby traps. And I was very fortunate to be assigned a dog that had been there for four years. If a dog can survive four years as a uh, leading a patrol in Vietnam, he's really good. And my dog was. His name was Big Boy, your tattoo number 72 AO. I'll never forget that, nor will any handler ever forget his dog's four-digit ear tattoo number, uh, and I was just so fortunate to get him. I spent a couple of weeks just acclimating and getting him to understand me and trust me. He knew what his job was. I was a green one. I had to learn from him. You were taught by Big Boy. Yes, I was. I had to learn how he alerts, and and he had to be
2: comfortable with me that I was going to take care of him. Do you remember the first the first scout job, the first assignment, if you will, with with your dog at that time. For myself, yes, but for him, I was at least the fourth
7: handler that he had experienced. So he was with. a definite veteran. Yes, um, he was. Wow. Yes, and like he you was. Say,
2: the life expectancy, as you alluded to a little bit ago, um, I, I think most of our listeners would say, "Oh yeah, we know why." Because you're probably not at the back. You're not in the rear, are you? Every time I was out in the field, I was walking point.
7: I was the first human in the patrol. Of course, big boy's walking in front of me. So, uh, he, he assumes more of the risk than I do. But I'm the first human. Thus, thus the high casualty rate because sometimes the dog would miss alerts. Sometimes the wind is not blowing right or if you're in the monsoon season and that rain is pounding down, you're still, you still have a job to do, but it's a lot tougher for the dog to pick up that alert, that scent of, of a human ambush or the, uh, the booby trap, whether it's the smell of the explosive or the vibration of the trip wire and the wind that he picks up or the, the scent of the crushed vegetation of the enemy setting that up, whatever, whatever gave him that alert,
2: uh, that was his job, is to let me know what, what he found. Hmm. Our guest is United States Army veteran Rick Claggett. He lives in Littleton from the Philadelphia area. If you don't mind me saying, you're 75 years old, and I tell you already, you are just an incredible storyteller. And we are all the beneficiaries, as I said, because for every one of you that will will speak, uh, I know that many, many already have gone to their graves from Vietnam, and and I think you're – You're doing such a tremendous service for them. You didn't want to go to Vietnam. You were drafted. Uh, Was that something? Were you able mentally to put that, you know, I can't just keep complaining. You know, you can't do that. People would be all over you. You're now there. You're in country. You know what's happened previous years, but now it's you.
7: Yeah, I I had my life planned. I was in graduate school. I wanted to finish my master's degree, start working, raise a family. I just got married, uh, and the army interceded. Uh, but I knew I was going to go. There was there's enough of a patriotism inside of me that I that I well, I didn't want to get drafted, but if I did, I was going to serve it your all. I was going to serve my country. Yeah, and then, and then it became more of I'm going to serve my dog. I want to I want to protect that dog. I want to make sure that that dog survives the period of time that I'm um, his master. How him.
2: old was Big Boy when you re- uh, when you were put he together? He was
7: 7 years old, which is about the peak uh, of the dog's performance there. After that, they start to they start to Lose it a little bit mm-hmm. as far as they they get old just like people do, yeah. and, and they start having uh, physical issues and things. But he was pretty much in his prime when I had him. I was very fortunate.
2: I can hear the love still. Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask, take us to uh, what you're comfortable in sharing. Take us to, oh, my God, uh, my name is Rick. I'm a scout. I'm point. I have a dog, and this is real. Uh, t- tell us what you remember. Uh,
7: probably the first dose of reality for me didn't necessarily involve my dog. It's when our plane landed in Totsunok ok Air Base in South Vietnam. As the plane went down, you see all these craters. And you're saying, this is a real war. Then when it touched down on the runway and it, and it pulls up to the hangars, there's a row of caskets ready to get loaded on that plane to go back to the States. And you're thinking, wow, this is not a game. This is a very serious, very serious war that's going on here. And at that point, my goal was to survive. I knew I wasn't going to win the war or anything, and I had questions of whether the U.S. was going to win the war the way it was fought. But I wanted to survive myself, and I wanted to have the men in my unit that I was the dog handler for to survive as well, and I wanted my dog to survive. That became my focus.
2: Our guest, Rick Claggett, Vietnam veteran, United States Army, in-country, 1970 to 1972, two years in, and just an incredible storyteller. We'll continue with Rick coming up. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com.
1: This is the American Veteran Show.
2: We continue the program Veterans with Veterans our Show our incredible com. Vietnam veteran Here's guest, Stephen Flaggett, 75 years old, lives in Littleton now, originally from the Philadelphia area. And you've heard how he gets connected with a seven-year-old German shepherd named Big Boy. And you just painted such a, a, a picture. I mean, my, my heart kind of skipped when you said you land and you get off the plane, and you see the caskets right there. I would imagine, like right now even, and I'm not trying to take you back to a negative part of your life, but that is reality. I bet you you can still see it in your mind. I sure can. I sure
7: can. And the other the other big memory I have from my time in Vietnam, at the end of the war for us, and our unit stood down, uh, they didn't need our dogs anymore, this was 1972. Uh, We used some 4,000 dogs in service in Vietnam. And no one – who knows that, Rick, right? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, a lot – oftentimes, it was only the handlers that knew we had dogs over there. But, uh, yeah, we had 4,000 of them that served uh, for the duration of the Vietnam War. About 1,000 of those died in service, either direct gunfire, booby traps, heat stroke, heat exhaustion, snake bite, accident, disease – 3,000 of them left at the end of the war. 1972 was really the last year that we needed infantry troops, and so that was really the last year for for the dogs. There were still dogs needed for sentry duty and things like that as long as U.S. troops were over there, but no longer were we in the field. They didn't need our dogs. We offered to bring our dogs back and pay for it, Ourselves. I was just an E-4. I didn't make much money, but I sure would have paid to have my dog come back. Instead, the decision was made that the dogs were considered surplus military equipment and expendable at war's end. I can guarantee you I had no remorse when I hung up my M-16 for the last time. But looking at my dog as it got loaded into a crate by the South Vietnamese Army and driven away— I will carry that memory to my grave. And I'm just so glad that no longer is that a fate of our dogs in the military. Now, uh, President Clinton signed a bill that said no military working dog left behind. At war's end, or the dog can no longer serve, and if they're adoptable, they're put up for adoption, and frequently by their former handler or his or her family, uh, but they're not left. And we left our dogs in Vietnam, and that's a tragedy that can never be repeated.
2: It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Our guest, Rick Claggett, uh, dog handler, Vietnam veteran. I I just can't thank you enough for letting all of us know about this, because I had never heard of this. And just when you kind of think, you know, most of everything, uh, you've heard at least something about everything. Uh, Absolutely not. I, I don't want to take you there, but I... I just cannot imagine, and I feel for you even today. But I can't imagine saying goodbye to Big yeah. Boy.
7: Yeah, it, it, like I said, I will carry that that to my grave. That he didn't have
2: the end of his life as it should have been. Do you think uh, Big Boy was successful in maybe preventing things from happening? And if, if so, tell us about it. No
7: question about it. I'll, I'll I'll give you there. There's several examples, but in the interest of time, I'll give you one. One day he was walking up a stream, which was a frequent mode of transportation because we could make better time walking up bodies of water than going through triple canopy jungle and hacking our way through with machetes. And the enemy didn't booby trap streams and rivers as much. So he's ahead of me, Oh, maybe, maybe 10, 15 yards ahead of me, walking up this stream. And the, and the troops are all behind me. And I have a guy that's right behind me who's my eyes because I have to lock in on that dog all the time. Because if he gives me an alert and I'm looking around not paying attention to him and then I send him on, he might have he been trying to tell me there was something ahead and I wasn't paying attention. So I'm locked in on him. Well, he's walking up this stream and all of a sudden he freezes a classic human ambush alert. If he smelled a booby trap, he would sit down. So at least I could distinguish whether it was humans, where we had to take immediate course of action, or whether it was booby traps where we had some time where we can figure out where the trap was. Uh, But he gave me a classic human ambush alert. He just froze, eyes and ears locked ahead upstream, and there was a huge boulder, maybe maybe 100 yards ahead of us. And what had happened uh, was there was enemy behind that boulder. I didn't know it at the time, but that's what I assumed. When the person behind me, who's my eyes, came up and said, what's your dog alerting on? I said, this is a human ambush alert. So what we did was circle in in both directions and engage the enemy at that point. They had casualties. We had none. There's no doubt in my mind that if Big Boy hadn't been leading that patrol and it was me or any other human, we're not going to be able to smell them behind that that boulder. We would have got right opposite them and were standing in the water with no cover at all. I wouldn't be here today, and, and I doubt anybody in that patrol would be. But fortunately, that dog was leading the patrol. That night, when we got to our night position, I had a number of soldiers come up to me and say, Boy, we're glad your dog was walking point today. Uh, Did Big Boy get some treats, perhaps? He (laughs) did. He did. You know, I carried uh, cans of horse meat and, like, a Kibbles and Bits uh, dog food and, and fed him out of my helmet But, yeah, that particular night, guys came up with food and gave it to him, and
2: he accepted it readily. You know, I I listened to your story, Rick, and it is up to a point, it's a Hollywood-type fairy tale, right, in a war zone. You have the relationship between man and dog, man's best friend. Yet at the very end i mean no one would want to see this movie right because you would walk out of there heartbroken like you were and and i think there's most certainly a still as you say you'll take it to the grave it's not the happy ending that i think uh, hollywood would have written
7: yeah I, i i i tried not to think about the war uh and i i was pretty successful in that for a number of years uh maybe it's the fact that you know i'm 75 now and and i'm reflecting back on my life uh and i just wish that my dog had the opportunity to live the last of his years back in the states Mm -hmm. and i'm so glad that dogs get an opportunity to do that now that are serving in the military colorado has a war dog memorial now in colorado springs and and i participated in that and uh, i also went before the colorado house and senate to get a resolution of support for the national war dog memorial which is in san antonio texas Uh, which is where the big vet hospital is. So dogs that are wounded overseas, and they can fly them home and treat them in the hospital. And that's also where all the dogs that are donated by individuals come into country uh, through Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio.
2: So it's a natural extension that the memorial be there. we got to wrap up, but I want to ask you, um, how long did it take to – to get your first dog out of service after you came home.
7: Oh, I I pretty much got a dog right away, uh, and I, I've had about four Labrador retrievers, and and uh, uh, I, I know we're short on time, but my wife uh, went out and brought a Shih Tzu, a little fuzzy yippy dog, and I said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna <laughs> walk that dog. I don't want my neighbors to see me, but it's delightful. So
2: little dogs have a
7: personality
2: and a purpose too. You are. One of my new heroes, uh, an American hero, and um, rest in peace, big boy, for for his job. Uh, Life well served. Rick Claggett, I cannot thank you enough. And once again, sir, welcome home. Thank you. Our sincere thanks to Rick Claggett, who just, say, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, would never have talked about this, would certainly never have worn a Vietnam veteran dog handler hat. Thank you, sir. And to all of you, Vietnam veterans, we, of course, say welcome home. That wraps up this week's edition. We'll have more next week on the funeral for Bob McAdam. And please wish me uh, luck, a little bit of grace. The family has asked me to deliver Mr. McAdam's eulogy coming up this Friday. We'll have more coming up a week from today for our incredible producer, Michael Arpaio. Stephan Tubbs wishing you a safe and healthy week. Remember Officer Dylan Vakoff, Bob McAdam, our veterans, and remember our troops. The American Veterans Show is
1: a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. Join us next week for another edition of The American Veterans Show. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now.